the last seven years or so, I've gone to the chiropractor. Um, I've gone to the chiropractor to relieve um, some tension and tightness and a little bit of pain in my back, my neck, and my mid-back, my lower back, even in my hips. And what a chiropractor does is he does adjustments on your spine to relieve some of that pressure. And doing that can help nerve endings and so you don't feel as much pain. Um, for me, that has been just the normal wear and tear of trying to live an active life as well as sitting down in a chair for six or seven hours a day at work and also looking down at my laptop or my phone. And weird things happen to your spine when you do that for long periods of time. Maybe you understand that as well. Somebody's about to go stand up in the back um, because of that. But what happens is, is the spine gets misaligned. Um, but the longer that you exist in that misalignment, your body gets used to that misalignment, and it actually considers um, your spine to be normal, and so some bad things happen out of that. Um, it retrains your spine to be in that position, in a position of misalignment. See, I think the Christian life, we can get misaligned over time really easily as well. Over time, we actually consider the way that we continue to choose to live as normal Christian life. And you can apply that in a lot of different ways to your life, whether it's temptations or whether it's something as simple as, what does God want from me? What does he desire from me in my life? I don't know about you, but the things right in front of me as, as someone who has three kids and life is busy, my tendency is to just look down at my life and look at what's right in front of me because I really don't have a whole lot of time to do anything else than to take care of which are good and right, to take care of family, to, to work, to finish off the, the list of things to do on my list. And so life gets very much like this, doesn't it? And I think that's a normal thing for us to experience. And yet God has bigger plans for us than that, doesn't he? He wants us to lift up our eyes. You see that in the scripture often. He wants us to lift up our eyes and see him. He wants to lift up our, our eyes and see other people. And he also wants us to lift up his eyes and to see his big vision, his big plan for the nations from all time. And it's not just this big vision that is now, but it spans across thousands and thousands of years. And so I don't know if you're with, with me right now, but while we certainly are called to care for ourselves, care for our own needs and families and each other. God wants us to fix our gaze on him. He wants us to fix our gaze on what he's doing in the world. In the book of Habakkuk, he even says it this way, just look up, Israel, and see what I'm doing. See all that I'm doing in the world and be amazed. You know, when we live like, like this, it's really easy to do. It's hard for us to fix our gaze on what God is doing in the world, and he wants to do in the world, and he wants to do in the world through you and me. That's the image I get of Israel in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be the light to the nations. And so we come this morning to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, open your Bibles there. God's got a big vision for his big world, for the people of God to be a light to the nations. And guess what? That hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in the church. God still wants to use you and me to be a light to those around us, the peoples of the world. And perhaps right now, being in quarantine or being stuck at home, it's been very easy to fix our gaze on what's been right in front of us. And maybe you're saying, I know where you're going, Pastor. 
I'm not a missionary. I'm a businessman. I'm a businesswoman. I'm a mom. I'm a teacher. I'm a builder. I'm not a missionary. That's not my calling. And I might press a little bit to say this, that maybe you're looking at it a little bit wrong. Maybe you're looking at it in a way that says, um, this is my vocation. And I'm saying that as the family of God, we are missionaries. That's what the Bible would, would teach us. You remember the disciples, the apostles? They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were tent makers. And yet God called them to lift their gaze and look at the nations and look at what's happened because of that. We are missionaries. It may not be our vocation, but it certainly is our identity. As a church, we're the family of God who are missionaries together. It just might look like you're a missionary at work, at home, in your neighborhood, but we certainly are missionaries. We are missionaries right where we are. We are the people of God, the people that God has brought right in front of you right now. You're a missionary to them. So turn with me to Genesis 10, and I want to show you the table of nations. Okay, the first week back, we're back for the first time in like 10 weeks, and we've got a genealogy. Aren't you excited? Without coffee, okay? Without coffee, a genealogy. So get ready. Kids here, kids in tow, um, we've got a genealogy, but it's a little more than a genealogy. It's called the table of nations. You see 70 nations that come out of the three sons of of Noah. I just want to give, before we get into this text, and I know you're going, how are you going to read that? Anybody want to volunteer to come up and read all these fun names with, for me? Um, let me give you an overview of the passage, so as we read through it and as we walk through it, you can put some of these things together, because you're seeing this maybe for the first time, at least this morning, unless you're the student that goes beforehand and goes, I'm going to read the next passage for next week. Maybe a few of you do that. You don't do that, son. I know you don't do that. Anyway, um, so Noah has come out of the ark, right? And last week we saw that God had blessed them and called him to multiply and fill the earth. His sons, the three, his three sons, Japheth and Shem and Ham. And this passage is going to show you them multiplying and filling the earth and that all the nations would come out of those three sons. So look around. You're functionally your cousins. You're cousins of one another. Anybody on the earth, you're, you're their cousin. I want, and that has a lot of impact on the way that you think about the, the person that looks different than you, the person that thinks different than you. There's one family that we all come out of. Those are high implications for our lives. We talked about some of that last week. But it does a couple of things. It shows us that this is exactly what the sons of Noah do. But it also, again, reminds us that where's the Messiah coming from? We're from chapter 3 in Genesis. Where is he coming from? Through the line of Noah. Last week we saw a little bit of Shem, but we're going to flush that out a little bit today. So this table of nations will also show us where the promised seed will come from. And it does a number of other things. Look at the structure of chapter 10. Just glaze at it if you have a Bible in front of you. This is definitely a week you want a Bible in front of you. I would encourage that each week. But notice how Moses walks through those sons. He walks through those sons from the farthest away, which are the Japhethites. Do we have the, a map? I'm going to give you a map right here to help you out a little bit. So I don't know how that shows up for you, if you can see a lot of that. If you've got a good study Bible, most study Bibles have maps to help you understand where these different sons of Noah uh, multiplied to and where they went and how they went there. But there's a structure here. So the farthest ones away are the Japhethites. And then the Hamites are a little nearer to the Shemites who basically make up 
Israel. And so you can see um, on that map some of that. And so if you look at this map, you see to the north, the Japhethites. So the son of Noah, Japheth, um, all of um, his sons and their sons settled north of, if you look in the middle there with the rectangle, you see Israel or Canaan. And so they go to the north. So European descent, Asian descent. This is mostly where you see the Japhethites. You got any Japhethites in here? We got a lot of Japhethites in here. We got like Crutchmeyer and Sexton and Dietrich. We got a lot of Europeans in here um, in descent. We got the, and then we have the Hamites that settled mostly um, in the land of Canaan and then down in northeast Africa, um, a little bit over here in Babylon as well. And so they're not exact geographies, but this is where the Hamites settled. And then the Shemites would represent Israel as well as the Arab nations, and they mostly have settled in the Arabian uh, Peninsula in Mes Mesopotamia right here. And so this is what we see from that map. And so you see the structure, you see the map. This is kind of a great, this is a great map as we read through Genesis chapter 10. And then there's repeated phrases at the end of the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, the sons uh, of Shem, and it, and it summarizes um, who they are, words that you see after their lineage, and they spread in these lands and these languages and clans and nations. And so we see the nations in this text. But there's a big question that comes out of chapter 10. Maybe you're not asking it, but you might be asking it after I talk about it a little bit. So when you come to chapter 10, you see these different languages all of a sudden. You see people divided and then you're looking at chapter 11 and you're going, wait a second, where the Tower of Babel, the passage of the Tower of Babel is in the next chapter. It's in chapter 11. So what's going on here? Have, there, have they already divided their languages and then the Tower of Babel happens? Like a number of passages in the Bible, even in narrative passages, here's what you see. You see the Tower of Babel actually happening at the front end of Noah's sons multiplying and filling the earth, likely a generation or two into it. When you come to verse 25, you see Peleg, and you see that the earth divided in his day. And you're also going to see next week that Nimrod, think about that name and how we use that name, um, it looks like Nimrod's a couple of generations in, and next week we'll talk about likely he's the, he's the leader of what's going on at the Tower of Babel. And so early on in, in the people of the earth multiplying, you have them coming together at the Tower of Babel, and the nations divide. So effectively, chapter 10, Moses gives you the effect before he gives you the cause. The cause is the Tower of Babel. The effect is the spreading even further of nations out. Confused yet? So that's a bit of an overview. But this one family shows us that there is an essential unity to all of us. All of mankind has an essential unity. We come from the same family, and it also has a natural diversity, that we look a little different. We have different tastes and different flavors, and that's a good thing. That's a natural diversity. And it also means that God in his common grace, God in his common grace has chosen to bless the nations. It's interesting, when you come to the book of Luke, giving you a lot of information up front, when you come to the book of Luke, remember Jesus sent out his disciples two by two? And it looks like there's 70 different places or 70 people that go out. 70 in the Bible, I don't get weird Omega Code stuff with the Bible numbers, but 70 is a number of completion. And so what Moses is doing here is he's saying, this is a representative of all the nation. And then you come to Jesus and he says, I'm going to send them out two by two. 
totaling 70, to say, I'm going to bring the message of the gospel to all the nations. Here's the point. Out of all of that, God is a God of the nations. He loves the nations, and he wants to use the people of God, his long-term strategy that spans thousands of years, to use the people of God who are set apart to reach the nations. That's part of your job. That's part of my job. And so when we think about alignment, and we think about our lives and, and looking right here, one of the things we need to do is open our gaze and look at the nations and look at what God's doing and be a part of kingdom work. And the beauty of that in Houston, Texas is what? The nations have come here. You live in a place and you work likely with people that are from all over the world. And you can accomplish that mission. Surely we need to go out there, but we can accomplish much of that with the people that we live around and are around in Houston, Texas. Well, with all of that intro, let me walk through Genesis chapter 10 a little bit with you. I just wanted to give you enough as you came in cold this morning and, and you're going to read through a genealogy to help you piece this together as we read through it. I'm going to skim it, um, walk, walk through this and skim it. This is my interview for like the college graduation where you have to do names and stuff. So I've worked on this a little bit, but bear with me. You can laugh if you want. Um, chapter 10, let's look through this and read through this. And then I want to draw out from each of the sons of Noah, a truth to live by and a truth to apply. Sound good? Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations, Toledot, remember, this is the fourth time you see it, so this is a new section. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and T Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenah, Riftah, see, this is fun. If, you, if you're going to have some more kids, there's some great names in here. And Togarim, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tar Tarshish, think about that, think about Jonah, Kittim, Dodanim, and from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with their own language, by their clans, in their nations. I want to stop here. These are the Japhethites, so this is what we get with the Japhethites. Notice the phrase in there, these are the people of the coastlands. Do you see it? This is Moses' way of saying, these are the people that are farthest away. The people of the coastlands are the people farthest away from where um, they are there in Canaan. And so, the Japhethites, here's your point. Here's your first takeaway this morning as you think about the people of the coastlands that are far away. Here's the point. The people of God are always to be a light to the nations, both near and far. You and I, like Israel, are, are meant to be a people of light who bring light to the nations, both near and far. It's interesting because this table of nations is, is set with Israel in view. Because after this, what's going to happen? God's calling Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the book of Genesis is going to hone in on the Shemites, the Israelites. And so what you see here is these people set in the Old Testament kind of against or looking at these other nations. The Japhethites, these are the people to the north, Europe, Asia, coastlands. Um, this is Moses saying that these are the people that are farthest away. It's interesting when you come to the book of Isaiah and you come to 
uh, the book of Jeremiah, you see two things that God wants to do with these faraway nations, the people of the coastlands. Go read it sometime. Isaiah chapter 42, he wants, he's speaking of Messiah to come, and he says to the people of God, he says, these people, I want these people to worship, the people of the coastlands, I want them to come in, and the, and the person who will bring these people in is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Israel, your job is to be a light to those nations. And so you see in view in Isaiah 42 that Jesus would bring those nations in, that he would see them saved, that they might be worshipers as well. And then you go to Jeremiah 25 and you see the people of the coastlands as well. And you see God bringing judgment at that point on the people of the coastlands in the Old Testament. And so what's Israel's job? What are the people of God? What are the, what's their job in the Old Testament? You know, when you think about different nations in that day, you think about Egypt, you think about the Pharaohs and the pyramids, um, you think about the Babylonians, and you think about the Canaanites, and you think about some of these other nations that were big and warring and mighty in battle. And when you think about Israel, God's image was that the people of God, people when they saw Israel and saw his hand on Israel as a set-apart people, the idea when people of the nations would see Israel would have been, these are the people of Yahweh. These are the people of God. Look how great their God is. That was their purpose. I don't know how well they did, if you look at it, think about that in our own lives. And yet God wanted to use his people to be a light to those nations in biblical times. Even in the New Testament, here's what you see. You see this idea that God cared for the non-Jew, the Gentile, as being a mystery. That that was one of the mysteries of the New Testament, that God was going to bring the Japhethites and the Hamites back. And he cared about them, and he wanted to use the people of God to lead them to the Messiah, the mystery. God has a big vision. He has a big vision for the nation, and it spans thousands and thousands of years. I know a guy who's a CEO of a big, big company, and you know what he spends his time doing? He spends his time surely casting vision that other businesses would tap into what they're doing, but he sits up in his penthouse suite, really nice, that overlooks Houston, and he dreams. And he thinks about where the company's going three years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, and he puts other people in place to make those things happen. God has a bigger vision than that. He has a huge vision that includes you and me being on mission. He's put you and me in the middle, like he did Israel. He's putting you and me in the middle of his vision saying, I want you to bring light to the nations. I want you to be royal ambassadors. I want you to be a city set on a hill this is God's desire for us as we think about being a light for the nation. This is the call, right, of the Great Commission. This is, these are the marching orders. This is the mandate for us is to make disciples of all the nations. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says it this way. I think we have that passage. I love the, the imagery of this passage as you think about Old Testament, as you think about the nations. He's talking to believers and he says, but you are a chosen race. I'm not talking about skin color. He's not talking about... Um, a people group, but the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Why are we a people for his own possession? That as a family, we would proclaim what? 
the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what God wants to do, not only with Israel in the Old Testament, but but you and I today. He wants us to be a light to the nations, both near and far. You know, I look around the room, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of Japhethite blood in here. Um, Aren't you glad that God is a God of the nations? Aren't you glad that he came near to you? That the gospel message that you heard from someone in some place has reached you. God doesn't just care about the nation Israel that's set apart. He cares about that nation reaching other people. And this is our call as believers in Christ. We surely should be caring for one another. We surely should be a family that loves one another. But we need to be aligned with God's big vision. And his big vision includes other people that don't know Jesus, the peoples of the world that have come right here. So let me ask you a few questions. Who do you know that is near you, but it is super far off from God? What might God desire you to do to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? What does it look like for you to proclaim that to other people? And maybe you say, man, I'm introverted and that's really hard for me to do, or I'm an Enneagram, whatever. Um, God, this is part of who we are. And God can use you, whether you're an introvert or you're an Enneagram, whatever. He can use you and someone's life to show them the gospel of Christ, to see Christ in your life, to be a light to the nations. And so don't let those kinds of things, don't let that be the thought, well, I can't do that because, because God surely wants to use you to reach people around you. Kids, y'all are doing really good, by the way. I'm really impressed. They're doing great this morning. I want to stop and say that. Thank you so much. Um, Well, the Japhethites surely teach us that we are to be a light to those far away. But what about these Hamites? Remember last week, the Hamites? who were cursed because of what Ham did with his father. Um, look, at, look at the Hamites there in verse 6 through 20. And I'm just going to skim through this a bit. This is the longest section that you're going to see. He focuses in. There's like 30 nations represented out of the 70 in the Hamites. And these are the enemies of God in the Old Testament. Just look through this list. These are the people that give Israel the hardest time in the Old Testament. So the sons of Ham... His immediate sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan, and he goes on and on. But he focuses in, maybe in this text, you're looking for something that's not in a list right here. And so look at Nimrod. Nimrod in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. The Hebrew for Nimrod is he was a rebel. So when you read it and you look at it, it says he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The idea of before the Lord that's used multiple times is not necessarily a good thing. You might think, hey, God was really pleased with this guy. This is, guy is a rebel. He has set his heart against God. Not only was he a mighty hunter of animals, it looks like he was a mighty hunter of people. When you get to the Tower of Babel, he is likely the one. He is likely the one that is leading the charge in the Tower of Babel to come together against God in pride and make a name for themselves. This is Nimrod. We have that phrase, Nimrod, and there's kids in here, but don't be a Nimrod. I almost entitled my sermon, Don't Be a Nimrod, but didn't do it. I had to throw it out there because it was too good, but I'm sorry, parents. Anyway, Um, but he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom. So this is the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, 
Calneh in the land of Shinar. So he's moved from um, northeastern Africa all the way into where the Shemites are. This is what you see with Nimrod. And then you come down to, to Canaan. Look at verse 15. You come down to Canaan and you see all these descendants of Canaan. And look at that list. These are the enemies of God. These are the people that give God's people the most trouble in the land. And remember who was going to be cursed back in the last passage. It wasn't Ham. It was who? It was Canaan and his descendants. And this is what you see. Look at verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites, underline that, extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah. Sound familiar? Adma, Zeboam, and Lasha. These are the sons of Ham. Listen, a couple things. These are the enemies of God that wreak havoc on God's people. And yet, here's what you see. You see Nimrod being functionally prob probably the world leader that everyone's looking at. Even God acknowledges his fame on the earth. Even God acknowledges his popularity, his power. Even God acknowledges who this man is. And yet these are the cursed people. And if you think about the land of Canaan, the territory that is described here, if you go study it, it's the best land. It's the best land out of all the land you see described. In every sun, you see different land described. This is the best land. This is the fertile land. So what's going on here? These are the people that are cursed. These are the people that bring the people of God the most harm. And on, from an earthly perspective, from an earthly perspective, they're the most successful. We've seen this before. We've seen this with Cain, where technology increases and his line says, no thanks God, I'm going to make a name for myself. This is what you see all the way through the Bible. Perhaps you can look out in your life right now and go, I can't believe, God, that you blessed that person physically on this earth. Look at the way they live. And look at, but look at what they have. So here's the point. Earthly gain doesn't equal heavenly reward in God's eyes. Earthly gain or fame does not equal heavenly reward in God's eyes. Here you have Nimrod and Cana, Canaan. In the world's eyes, they would be the celebrities. They would be in the place, both in where they were at. Nimrod was the celebrity of the world at this point. But look, we've seen it before. The people of God in, in the book of Psalms 73 would be a great place to go. Or he says, the wicked prosper. And the people of God are saying, why? See, the sun goes down on the wicked and the righteous every day. God's economy is different. The way he measures success is different than the way the world measures success. That's a message you and I need to hear. <laughs> we need to be reminded of that message. Jesus says it this way. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I want you to think about that this morning. You know, as a youth guy, you, you, you meet a lot of different people, and I was really young. I was, I'd been in ministry about two years. I remember going out to eat with this family uh, and a family that didn't show up to church a whole lot. And I would hear from the family that, hey, uh, kids just had a lot of homework so that we didn't come to church on Sunday morning. And so I'm just trying to get to know this family. Who are they? And I remember going to lunch with them as a, as a young youth pastor and just listening, just listening to the life they were living and what they valued and and I remember them saying, well, you know, she's in sixth grade, but we really want her to get into an Ivy League school. And so that's why we put so much into this. And I'm like, that's great. 
like she's really, and she's really smart, her kids are really smart, that's awesome, well, what next? And then they would tell me what would be next after uh, Harvard or Yale or wherever it was, and then I would say, well, what's next? And they would describe this life, what's next? And it just was an interesting dialogue um, with a family that, that clearly was focused on at the end of the conversation, we just want her to be successful. We just want her to be known. And I don't think I did at that point. I didn't have enough mustard to do it, but I wanted to say, she is known. She is loved. Man, we can fall into that trap really easily, even as believers in Christ, to get misaligned. How do you define C3? How do we define success? What are you chasing? What are you investing in? Will it last? Will it last? It is, there is nothing wrong with making a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of life. But how do you define success in the end? Is it a name? Is it fame? See, God doesn't define success that way at all. You know, we bought a house in December, and we've spent, it, the quarantine's been a little bit nice because we've, I had a list, like two pages long, and I thought it would take me two years to, to, to pull off, and my sons would tell you, hey, we've been doing a lot of work around the house. We need to get out of this quarantine thing. Um, but we've got a lot knocked out, and it's been fun to do that. I mean, the line at Home Depot's nuts, <laughs> people doing stuff. Or the landscape supply place. Um, but, you know, as hard as we've worked on that house, I would do that for my house because it's a place I'm going to live. It's where we live. But if you drive to this summer, if you go to Colorado on vacation, there's probably a lot of Airbnbs open right now. So you might check it out. You stop at a hotel. Are you going to do a lot of work, interior design on that hotel room? Are you going to adjust, bring your own paintings in? Are you going to paint the walls. You're not going to do that because it's not your home. That would be silly for someone to do, but we often live that way. I often live that way. I invest too much time in things that aren't going to last, that places that are not my home. Heaven is our home. So earthly gain doesn't equal heavenly reward in God's eyes. Well, what's worth chasing? If that's not worth chasing, what is worth chasing? Here's your last point, and it comes from the line of Shem. God's undeserved grace is more valuable than power and riches. God's undeserved grace is more powerful. God's undeserved grace is more valuable than power and riches. Listen, the Shemites settled. If you look at it, let's look at it here. The Shemites, also the father of the children of Eber, if you want to know where the word Hebrew comes from, it comes from the word Eber, and you see him all the way through this. Shelah fathered Eber, verse 24. To Eber were born two sons, the name of one Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. I think that's probably the Tower of Babel. And his brother's name was Joktan, and they go through a long list. But listen, I want you to think about the line of Shem. If you go to the next chapter, and we'll get there in a few weeks, but if you go to verse 26 in chapter 11, if you've got a Bible in front of you, it says, in the line of Shem, it says, Terah lived 70 years and fathered who? Abram. 
So you're seeing the line, right? You're seeing the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing coming from Abram. So Abram comes, his father is Terah. He comes from the line of Shem. Where is Abram's family from? They're from Ur of the Chaldees. Do you know what the people of Ur of the Chaldees worship? They worship idols. It looks like from history they worship the moon god who it was believed were over the heavens and the earth. And Joshua says in Joshua 24 that the family of Abram, the line of Shem, through Tamar, Terah, were what? They were a family of idol worshipers. God calls Abram out of a line of idol worshipers. And you see even in Abram's house, where Sarah has these idols, these household idols, you see it with Rebecca, there's some remnant of that. I want you to think about Abram's life. Abraham's life later. Was he the perfect picture of godliness? Not so much. See, God's sovereign, this is what we see over and over again in the book of Genesis. You can't escape God's sovereign grace in people's lives like Noah, like Abram. And so God's undeserved grace is more valuable than power and riches you know, I think of the Apostle Paul here. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. Remember his resume in Philippians chapter 3? In Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He was like the chief Pharisee. That would have afforded him power and fame. He would have been known through the world or through Israel as one of the greatest Pharisees. He had power, he had fame, he had money, he had all of that. But when he met Christ, not because of what he had done, clearly, he was a persecutor of Christians. When Jesus came to him on, a, on, on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes and he comes to faith, what becomes more valuable to him than this power and his riches and his fame and his earthly religious success? Look at it. Philippians 3, I think we have it, verse 5 through 9. He'd been touched by the grace of God. And look at what the text says. It says, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and so you walk through his resume. And then it said, uh, I'm trying to read, it's really small back there. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, you see that? Whatever gain I had, so here's his, here's his sheet. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. How do you look at checks and balances in your life before God? It's knowing Christ, living in the undeserved grace of the gospel that it affords to you and me. See, I think we all around here, we, we believe, we certainly believe that the undeserved grace that God gives us is more valuable. I believe that up here. But my question, and maybe the operative question, both for me and for you today and tomorrow and the next week, is not, do I believe it's more valuable? But do I see it as more desirable? 
Do I see living in the grace of God as more desirable today than looking out there at all the nimrods? Sorry. Looking, I'm, I've worked that way too much today. Um, but looking at fame and fortune, that's an operative question that you have to continue to ask yourself. It's not about if, it, if I believe up here if it's valuable. It's about really living that out and going, is it more desirable when I'm looking at my, my, my checking account that's really low? Is it really more desirable when I'm thinking about work and where I'm at on that totem pole at work and I really want to be here? Or I see the mom whose Pinterest pays look way better than mine and their kids look way more behaved than mine. What are we seeking? What's more desirable? See, we see God's grace in the line of Shem. We see the vanity and fame of Ham. We see God's big vision for reaching even those far off in Japheth. See, God loves the nations. God loves the nations. He uses his covenant people not only to know him and know each other and care for each other, but to be a light to all the people groups of the world. We're to be a light to the nations. Nations, That's our marching orders too. I want to show you a different, as we close, I want to show you a different kind of map. Show you a different kind of map. This is the map of the world, well, in 2016. And the red represents effectively unreached people groups of the world. People that less than 2% um, know Christ or know even about Christ. And then the yellow represents where there's not a whole lot of gospel witness. And green where at least the gospel has been heard. Um, if we honed actually in on the United States, you would see in the last couple of years, you would actually see a little bit more yellow. You'd see a little bit more yellow in the Northeast. But I want you to look at all the red. These are the unreached people groups of the world. This is often called the 1040 window. Where the, where the nations haven't even heard or know about Christ as a whole. Have you ever considered that we have a, even though the, the world is small, the world is really big to reach for the gospel. And here's the interesting thing. I guarantee you, everyone, probably everyone in this room knows somebody that has moved from those places to here. And so you're saying, well, Seth, I, I'm not, I, I may not change my vocation and become a missionary in the Middle East or Africa or India or Asia. But listen, those people groups have come here. And we have opportunities all around us with Japhethites and Hamites and Shemites to make the gospel known to the nations, even in Houston, Texas. See, God's people are called to be set apart. We've certainly called, like Israel, to be set apart from the world, but for the sake of the world. You catch that? You're set apart to be, live holy lives. Not set apart to go live over here in my huddle, but we're set apart for the sake of the nations. And so the call this morning is to live set apart lives that are aligned with God's mission. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We thank you for this table of nations that we could easily just skim through and look at and go, I don't know who all those people are, but you call them important. And you're a God whose heart beats for the nations to come to know you, that there might be 
more and more worshipers, that in the end of time, that every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation might worship God. Lord, let it be true of our life. I just want to confess that I often look down and often look at my own life and I don't look out at what you're doing. Make us a people, make us a church that look up and look out at what you're doing and call us to be a part of it. Make us be a part of it as a church, Lord. Thank you for the different ways in which as a church we can support ministries far away that reach people with the gospel and as well as near. But let today be a reminder that maybe my neighbor needs to hear the gospel. Maybe the person down the street, maybe I need to figure out ways in which at least to support people who are reaching people for the gospel. Make this really tangible in our lives, Lord what you call us to. We love you and we thank you that we have the opportunity to gather again this morning, to be together as the people of God, to worship with one another. Thank you for the rich community and the community life that exists here amongst friends, amongst people who love and care for each other. I thank you for that rich blessing. As we, as we have come into this church, Lord, I thank you for the church that cares for one another so well. Let us also be a people who reach the nations in Jesus' name. Amen.